Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from March of 2018, entitled Postcards from the Anthropocene. To find out about future science cafes, please visit ummnh.org. Good evening, everyone. We're going to get started now. I'm standing here in the middle of the room. Welcome, everyone, to tonight's science cafe, which is called Postcards from the Anthropocene. Uh, We're delighted to have you all here. It's looking a little bit spring-like outside, which is a nice treat. Uh, I thought I'd give you a few updates on the museum. Many of you know that we are closed because we are moving into a new facility next door. On Wednesday next week, most of our staff are moving into our new offices, so we are in boxes right now. And uh, we'll be opening the new museum in two phases in 2019. The first opening will be in the spring, and the second will be in the fall. So we'll keep you informed as, as we progress. Um, our next Science Cafe will be on April 11th, and the topic will be about CRISPR. And Kira will tell you the title. I will. <laughs> After she thinks about it. <laughs> yeah. But you won't want to miss it, because it'll be a really interesting topic. And uh, I'd like to ask you to join me in thanking Connor O'Neill's for making this space available. So without further ado, I'd like to hand the mic over to Kira Berman, who is the mastermind behind the Science Cafe series. Thank you, Amy. Um, So next month's Science Cafe, I believe, is called Genetic Engineering in the Age of CRISPR, and it has a subtitle that I can't remember right now. Um, uh, CRISPR is a new tool uh, that scientists are using to do genetic engineering and basically gene and genome editing. It's very exciting. Uh, And so we have three speakers uh, next month. Um, One of the things that is currently in boxes of sorts... Uh, is our donation box. So we have a substitute donation box. Amy, can you hold that up? It's a, it's a little bit lower tech than our other one, so but I just want to point that out to you. Um, and um, as always, uh, with the Science Cafe, if you're new to the Science Cafe, I'll give, I'll give you a little rundown of the format. We have the speakers do... Ooh. Can you... Lisa, it's a little high. Wonderful. We have the speakers do um, about 15-minute introductory presentations, and then we'll break in the middle for some conversation at your tables. There are resources at the tables as well as discussion questions at the tables, um, and the speakers will circulate during that time. And then at the end, we'll come back together for a moderated group discussion, and I will moderate. Um, Agreed? Sound good? Awesome. Okay, here we go. Okay, Um, let's see. I will introduce these folks in the order that they will be speaking. I think that will be the easiest. Um, Naomi Levin, uh, on my left, is Associate Professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences. Um, Previous to coming to Michigan in 2016, she completed her postdoctoral work at Caltech and served on the faculty at Johns Hopkins. Naomi studies how Earth's organisms and landscapes have responded to past climate change. Her research group uses stable isotopic records to study interactions between mammals, vegetation, and climate in past ecosystems. And her work involves a combination of geologic field work, that means she gets to go exciting places, um, isotopic lab work, and modern analog studies. Her active projects include reconstructing Pliocene and Pleistocene environments from sedimentary and isotopic records preserved in the East African Rift System, isotope hydrology in Ethiopia, and paleoecological and sedimentology of mid-Pleistocene sites in South Africa. <laughs> no, that's okay. I thought I, ha- I thought I had gotten it so I could read it, but I, I impress myself sometimes. Um, uh, anyways, please welcome Naomi Levin. And 
Uh, Julie Cole is an interdisciplinary paleo-environmental scientist with a passion for science communication. That's also one of my passions, so I'm especially excited you're here. Uh, she's a professor of earth and environmental sciences at the University of Michigan and research director for the ocean at the University of Arizona's Biosphere 2. Before joining Michigan, she served on the faculty of the University of Colorado and the University of Arizona. Julie's research focuses on understanding environmental change in regions and systems with substantial ecological and human impacts. Current projects focus on El Nino and Pacific variability, drought in western North America, coral reef environments, which I think she'll talk about today, and monsoons in Asia and the Americas. She's also working to rejuvenate the ocean biome at the Biosphere 2 as a platform to accelerate the science around reef restoration. So please welcome Julie, Julie Colt. Thank you. So without further ado, I'm going to let Naomi uh, go ahead and get us started. All right. Um, well, thanks for having me here, and I'm sorry for giving you a lot of multi, multi-syllabic words to, to chew on. But um, uh, <laughs> So a lot of what I do is I think about climate change, but I think about climate change from the perspective of organisms and landscapes and how they're responding. And so that means that it's very, very different kinds of, it's an integrated sort of mosaic kind of response. Um, and I do different things, and so these are pictures of me, three different pictures of me. One is maybe I'll stand up here so you guys can all look at this, but I'm in the field, I'm collecting samples, that little white dot on the, the hill slope digging pits. So I collect samples in the field, put things into a geologic context. So the upper left panel is in um, uh, East Turkana, so in northern Kenya, and um, the lower right panel where I'm looking up and taking detailed notes on a pit, I'll actually, that's from southern Kenya, and I'll highlight that area in a moment. But then I also collect these samples and then um, do the fun, nitty-gritty field work of, and pretty, you know, sort of 18th century methods in many ways of collecting things in the field, and then also take it up to state-of-the-art mass spectrometry in terms of really trying to squeeze as much information as we possibly can out of these samples to get um, information on them. So I'll do next slide. So I, answer, I ask a lot of questions in terms of generally how landscapes are responding, but a lot, sort of one of my specialties is thinking about how specifically landscapes and climates have responded that relate to human evolution. And this has taken me to Eastern Africa uh, predominantly, uh, but I also work in South Africa. And some of these are some of the questions that I think about. Um, what were the environments in which early humans lived? So where were we on the landscape? Um, what were the diets of early humans? So how do you make a living, right? If you ask to meet somebody on the street, you're saying, what do you do for a living? Which is basically, you have to ask a two and a half million year old hominid, what did you eat? That's the same thing as what did you do? It's really what, how do you make your living? Um, how did they partition resources among themselves um, in times of diversity? So something important that we think about is that most of the time in our human history, we weren't the only ones, right? There were actually other hominids, whether they were Neanderthals or other, other organisms around. And what does climate play a role in all of this? And so this is where I'll talk about sort of the early phase of the Anthropocene in terms of the early sort of interactions with um, humans and environment and climate. And Julie will take more of the, of our two-woman show, she'll take the, the latter, more pressing part of it. But next slide. So just to highlight some of you, I don't know, who's heard of these recent discoveries in Kenya that have just happened? Okay, so there's these, I'm going to go through, so I was part of this project, um, and uh, so this is something that, and this, I actually started working at this site when I was, it was actually an accident in 2002. I was supposed to spend time in northern Kenya, and the logistics didn't work, so someone said, do you want to spend time at this site? And I said, sure. And this is actually going to be my, my first publication off of it. There's actually many more to come, but, um, so what is it, 16 years later. Uh, but this is a site called the Lorgas Island in southern Kenya, and I'm just going to scroll through these different headlines that came out last Thursday. This is from the Atlantic. A cultural, oh, wait, let me just read the first one. A cultural leap at the dawn of humanity. New finds from Kenya suggest that humans use long-distance trade networks, sophisticated tools, and symbolic pigments right from the dawn of our species. Um, so they actually found pigments. Um, they found the, the ha uh, hand axes on the left are the, the older tools, and the, hand, uh, the tools on the right are the more sophisticated ones. Okay, so next slide. Uh, I love this one from NPR. Scientists are amazed by the Stone Age tools they dug up in Kenya. It's like the most distilled version, but it's true. Uh, okay, next slide. 
Signs of symbolic behavior emerge at the dawn of our species in Africa. So this is also, when did we start trading with other people? We actually know this by trading obsidian. We know that there was, you know, uh, tens of, or maybe probably almost 100 kilometers uh, that a lot of this material has traveled back and forth. Next slide. Uh, colored pigments and complex tools suggest humans were trading 100,000 years earlier than previously believed. Transformations in climate and landscape may have spurred these key technological innovations. So this is where I come in, right? That climate piece and that landscape piece, you need people to sort of start to put this together and understand the interactions between climate and humans. Next slide. Okay, ancient climate shifts may have sparked human ingenuity and networking. So this is going back to the what is thought of our origin of our species, so maybe 100,000, 300,000 years ago. But it's also thought that climate was in really important for the whole origin of our lineage going back millions and millions of years ago. So this idea of this interaction between climate and humans isn't new. This is part of, and I want to argue, part of our history, part of who, you, who we are. And maybe even part of tinkering and modifying our landscapes is actually human. Maybe this is part of who we are. Okay, next. Um, so what do we mean by human? Um, this is just, I know you can't see the words, but this is from the Smithsonian website, which is a great interactive website in terms of um, different groups. And so we have, it goes back six million years, basically when we genetically split from uh, chimps, somewhere between six to eight million years ago. So all of these groups in the past six million years we're more similar to us than chimps are. Okay, so if you look in the eye of a chimp, you're like, ah, there's something there that's similar. All of these critters up here would have been more similar, okay? You would have looked in their eye and you would have felt some sort of connection to them. There is also something that's really remarkable is that multiple time slices, so this is old at the bottom and young at the top, there were many of us. So we weren't alone. That, to me, that's wild. <laughs> and so we had to somehow partition our resources, somehow be special, okay? Um, and so the very, very top is you are here. You're at the very, very, very end of that. So my questions and things that I think about is how has climate shaped human evolution and human history? And in turn, how have we shaped climate? And how long does that second question go back? Well, how far do we push that back? Okay, next slide. Okay, so these are the things that we sort of think about what we do. Humans up are upright walking, uh, we walk in different diverse, we're in different habitats, we manufacture tools, um, this helps us compete for resources, we have big brains, that means that we can respond to environmental variability, so we can do different things depending upon where we are. Uh, we have language and symbols, the age of this is now being pushed back as of last Thursday. Uh, we have different body types. We can survive in different conditions depending upon what we look like. Um, and we're social. And so we have infant care. We have social networks. Again, the social networks point was just um, part of those, those science papers that just came out. So this question is all of these things about what we do, upright walking, social behavior, language, symbolic thought. Are these all products of our climatic conditions? Right? Is this all part of our climate state? Um, and another thing is basically to be successful, have we had to modify our habitat? Have we had to modify Earth? So that's more of a thought question, but something that I think about. Okay, next slide. So what aspects of climate affects humans? So drought, temperature, sea level. Sea level has a huge impact on humans and a history of humans because of migration. We actually got to the Americas, it's thought, because sea levels were low and we can go over the Bering Strait. So this idea of us moving around the continent, sea level has actually been really critical for that. Vegetation and crops is important. These dice represent variability and unpredictability. If you don't know what's going to happen next year, then that's going to affect what you do right now. Um, and then we, uh, we're affected by landscape changes. And humans might respond by changing their population, moving around. Diseases affect us. Conflict is related to climate. Technology is related to climate and adaptation. Um, and then in turn, and Julie will probably talk more about this, but how do humans affect the climate system? This is uh, the upper left, my representation of the greenhouse, right? We're putting cars in a greenhouse and we can heat that greenhouse up. Albedo, we can change the albedo of our system, we can change the temperature, and we can change all of these things. So it's a feedback, right? We can change these variables, but these variables are really important to probably shaping who we are. Next slide. Um, so this concept, and people define this differently, but it's thought that the Anthropocene is a time in which humans have replaced nature as the dominant environmental force on Earth. So people define, so when was this? When did it start? And if you go back, if you go forward a million years, how are we going to recognize it? At what point do we put this mark? Um, so the next slide. 
So this is actually a handout that you all have. I don't expect you guys to actually read this. But this is a thought piece, actually, to think about, um, is when did the Anthropocene start? If this was a geologic age, um, you could put a golden spike in it. So you could actually, there's different geologic ages that people put golden spikes, but when would you do it? Um, so some people think that it's when you could actually detect it in the record, which is basically when we started putting what's called the nuclear bomb spike, when we actually started putting uh, testing for bombs, and that left the record all across the Earth that you could actually pick up. Other people say, no, 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 it would be the Industrial Revolution when we really started changing things, so in the 1850s, let's say. Some people say, oh, no, 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 it's when we started, when basically the Columbian exploration started and we really started moving across the globe. Others would say, oh, no, 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 it's actually when agriculture really kicked off and we really started modifying landscapes and we even started changing our greenhouse gases then and that's when it really started. And some people say, no, 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 it's actually put it back more when actually there was around maybe um, anywhere between, let's say around 20,000 years ago, there were these megafauna extinctions, right? And there was big animals who went extinct across the whole world. And this was because of human hunting. Maybe some would say, oh, no, 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 take it back further, right, to basically maybe when that technological change happened 300,000 years ago. So the question is, when do you start it, right? Where do you put that golden spike in the ground? And um, I think we can sort of, I don't know where I am there, but I sort of, um, this is something, this is, this chart can just be a thought piece. You can think of cultural changes that have happened that are on this plot, and you can also think of the next slide, um, which would be environmental impacts. And so this is just something to be, thinking about as we go through. And I think that's where I sort of end. So hopefully that's sort of taking the long view um, and can set the stage for, for Julie. Okay, thanks. So I'm going to start at the opposite end of the time scale and move backward. I think nobody can deny that if there is such a thing as the Anthropocene, we're in it. Um, this is an image of Earth from space, a satellite mosaic of the nighttime glow from all the uh, electric lights that we turn on at night. And you can see on this image the degree to which uh, we have modified and colonized the Earth's surface and spread over it. Next slide, please. Um, there's a concept that people discuss called the Great Acceleration that's happened since about the mid-20th century. And you don't have to read these graphs. In fact, I think the impact is greater if you don't. But every one of these little squares is a graph of something that has changed dramatically starting around 1950. And it doesn't matter if you look at socioeconomic or sociopolitical measures like population, energy use, or whether you look at environmental measures like the concentration of greenhouse gases or the degree to which terrestrial land has been used or disrupted or the water cycle or fishing, any of these things. These are all up there and more, and all of them show a dramatic increase um, in, uh, around the mid-20th century. So all of these are, are really defining a period of time that is um, more than unprecedented, but really unusual, unique in our, in our history. Um, and these trends, although you may see some of those curves leveling off, most of them are not yet leveling off, which I think doesn't bode very well for us if we, uh, if we are worried about unpredictability. Next slide, please. So what I'm going to focus on today are three things, ocean warming, coral reefs, and an ocean in the desert. Um, next slide. Oh, and the background, sorry, the background of that last slide is the uh, warming of the last few years, just showing the extent of what we call global warming. Um, next slide, please. The nature of warming on the planet has been described by thermometers all around the world. Um, people put those together, all that data together in different ways. Lots of different research groups has done have done this. They all come up with the same answer. This is a, a, a plot of temperature change from 1880 to present. And you can see that the warming since that time has been about 2 degrees Fahrenheit or 1 degree Celsius. Many different data sets, many different researchers, many different statistical approaches. One answer, though, that the world is warming at an unprecedented rate. Next. There is a long-term trend here that is caused um, without any doubt by human activity, by the input of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. However, there are year-to-year -year and decade-to-decade -decade changes in the rate of that warming. You may have heard a few years ago from about 2000 to about 2013 or so, that global warming had stopped. How many people heard that on the news? Yeah, no more global warming. Look, it's leveled off. Um, I, there's not too many hands up, which is good because that means you don't listen to Fox News very often. But <laughs> 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 um, 
clearly, the last few years, Mother Nature's had the last word so far, and, and, and the warming has continued. But what we're seeing here is um, a manifestation of, of natural climate variability. Yeah, superimposed on this long-term warning. Next slide, please. So where does global warming go when we trap greenhouse when, we, when greenhouse gases trap heat in the atmosphere and in the Earth system? Where does it go? It turns out that the atmosphere only shows us about three percent of that story, and that something like ninety three percent of the heat that's trapped by greenhouse gases goes into the ocean. So global warming is really ocean warming, and what's happening in the atmosphere is just the little tail end, not even the tip of the iceberg on that story. Next slide, please. This is a plot showing the accumulation of energy in the ocean, and you can see that interval where global warming had slowed down, uh, quote-unquote. It didn't, but atmospheric warming slowed down um, between about 2000 and 2013, and that red interval shows a period of rapid ocean warming at the same time. So there's no question that global warming continued uh, at, a, at an accelerating rate through that time. Next slide, please. Here's a plot showing the ocean... Um, temperature anomalies, and, and I want you to focus on the bright red areas. Those are areas that set temperature records in 2015. Next slide, please. The areas that set 2015 records, um, if, you, if it didn't set a record in 2015, it likely set a record in 2016. Next slide. And if it didn't set a record in 2016, it likely set a record in 2017. So you can see that most of the ocean has experienced record high temperatures in the last few years. Um, next slide, please. Global warming is ocean warming, and that means bad news for a lot of aspects of the Earth's system. Um, this means that the Antarctic ice sheet is melting, not from warm air above, but from below as waters around it warm and melt it away at the base. Next slide, please. Uh, global warming is ocean warming. That warmer water takes up more space in the ocean basins, and just by virtue of warming, expands and floods out areas like Kiribati here, a country that lies within a meter of sea level. Next slide, please. Um, those ocean, but by the way, those ocean, not just by expanding, but those melting ice sheets are accelerating that warming dramatically right now. Global warming is ocean warming. That means that the Arctic sea ice covering the ocean is melting back dramatically. That change from a bright reflective surface to a dark ocean is a positive feedback, which means it's an accelerant on climate change, a vicious cycle, so that it uh, accelerates the rate of warming in the Arctic and has tremendous impacts on the ecosystems of the region and the livelihoods of the culture and the infrastructure that native people in the Arctic depend upon. Next slide, please. Uh, a warming ocean feeds stronger storms and accelerates storms like Katrina shown here moving across the Gulf of Mexico. Next slide, please. The thing that's near and dear to my heart and my research is that a warming ocean throughout the tropics has caused us to lose about half of the coral that grows on reefs throughout the tropical oceans in the last few decades. If we don't stop this soon, we are, we are on track to lose the other half. Okay. Next slide, please. And if you haven't seen Chasing Coral, it's a great movie, a documentation of this problem. Okay. So if I was going to send you a postcard from the Anthropocene, uh, and I had to pick a place to send it from. I would send it from the Galapagos because that's where I've been working most lately in the field. The Galapagos lie offshore to the west of South America, several hundred miles off in the Pacific, uh, straddling the equator. Next slide, please. And the Galapagos are really unusual because they lie in, some, in a pool of cool upwelled water that comes up along the coast of South America from the high southern latitudes, and upwelling also occurs along the equator in that archipelago and keeps those islands cooler than other equatorial islands would be. It's the only place that's not a continent size like Australia. It's the only place where within a few days, let's say, you can see penguins and coral reefs in the same place. So it's really remarkable in that way. And although I love penguins, um, <laughs> I've been working quite a bit on the coral reefs there. Um, one of the concerns that we have is that the Galapagos have not been seen to be noticeably warming in that cool area where the penguins live. And that's a great story. That's a great sign because it means that they may be protected from warming because those upwelled waters are continuing to come up. However, to the north where the coral reefs lie, we found a different answer to that question, are the oceans warming? Next slide, please. 
So the way that I look at ocean warming in the past is to use the record that, are pres- that is preserved in long-lived corals. This is a coral that stands about two meters high, and it puts on about a half an inch to an inch of skeletal growth every year. The chemistry of that skeleton tells us about the conditions under which it formed. So the chemistry is going to be a little bit different in warm seasons and cool seasons, warm years and cold years, La Nina years, El Nino years, changes every year um, that we see. And it's going to show us the long-term trends in climate change. Corals also often have annual bands like trees. And here's an example of what some of those bands can look like. And they help us tell the age of these samples. Okay, next slide, please. So if you could click on that, I think it's a movie. I wanted to just give you a sense of what we do when we're sampling there underwater. Um, I'm using a hydraulically, or sorry, a, this is an air-powered drill, a pneumatically powered drill, to drill into a long coral that turns out to be about 200 years old. Um, I'm drilling by hand, trying to stabilize myself, and I'm being helped by Jennifer Suarez, who's a Galapagos National Park ranger. She's pumping water down the drill string to flush out um, powder, And um, uh, another colleague, Diane Thompson, is taking this video and trying to hold still in a situation where there's currents and waves and she's bobbing up and down and we're all in scuba gear. So um, this is the funnest part of the work that I do, uh, taking these samples, (laughs) as you can imagine. Um, I think uh, you can get us feeling for what's going on there. So thank you. Um, So we took a core from those corals, uh, that and other corals, and we've published some of that work just last week, or last month, sorry, in a paper led by a graduate student of mine at at the University of Arizona where I'm finishing up uh, advising students there as I'm moving to Michigan. Um, Gloria Jimenez published this work showing that we we can see a warming trend in the northern Galapagos where the coral reefs are living that we did not expect to find. So that was a bit of a surprise But it wasn't a happy surprise because, you know, as I said, we thought the Galapagos were fairly stable in temperature. And so um, identifying this warming, we hope, tells us something about how how worried and how protective we must be around those reefs to keep them intact. Next. Um, Coral reefs are really important worldwide. Um, They support something like 25% of all marine species at some point in their life spend time on a coral reef. It's really remarkable. They are, if you calculate the value of the services that ecosystems provide, coral reefs have the highest value per unit area. Now, they don't have a huge unit area, so things like forests you know, top them out on total value, but they have a very high per, per unit area value. Um, they support something close to a billion people indirectly and directly through things like food and trade in coral reef products and tourism um, and, and all, all kinds of services that they provide. So they're extremely valuable. And as I said, we've lost about half of those coral, coral reef, um, corals on reefs at this point because of warming. Um, so this is a dramatic and drastic problem we're facing. It's, a, it's an ecological catastrophe, really, in the oceans. Next. And what we're seeing um, is that reefs that have been resistant to ble- some reefs that have even been resistant to bleaching are starting to bleach. When I say bleach, I mean that they turn from their normal healthy brownish greenish color to white. What happens is that the warm temperatures affect a an algae that lives symbiotically in the coral tissue. And that algae gets expelled by the coral. The algae starts making too much oxygen inside the tissues and the coral can't stand that. So it kicks them out. And when it does that, the coral loses its bright color. The coral relies on those algae for nutrition. And so they become undernourished and their defenses weaken. And if they don't regain their algae back, if temperatures don't moderate and they can regain those algae back, they will die. So not all corals that bleach die, but many do. Next. Okay. So we're trying to address this problem, and, and constructing records of past climate change isn't going to do it, but I've had the opportunity to work at the biosphere too. How many people have, have heard of the biosphere? Okay. Ha- anybody been there? All right. A few of you have seen it. Okay. Has anybody seen the ocean? Do you have any memories of the ocean there? Okay. Um, so you may, if you've seen it recently, you'll know that the ocean doesn't look like a coral reef now. The ocean was established as a coral reef early on. It was, uh, went through some periods of neglect, um, I'll say, and the reef itself has died. So it's basically a crashed coral reef, um, which we actually have a fair number of in the real ocean today. Um, so we are trying to rejuvenate that reef 
recover the water quality and bring it back to grow a coral reef in the, in the biosphere that we can use to experiment in ways that we might be scared to experiment on natural reefs. So we can try things that would never be permitted. For example, we could mix species to find out which species um, are the most, to find the most heat tolerant species anywhere and see if they will grow well together. Maybe one comes from the Atlantic and another one comes from the Indian Ocean. You'll never find a reef manager in the real world who would let you do that on their reef, but you could do it under glass in the Arizona desert because there's no chance of anything going too wrong. If it goes wrong, it's at least contained, right? Um, so we can mix and match species. We can adjust their microbial populations, put in different kinds of symbiotic algae, perhaps. People have even suggested we could do genetically, mo- genetically modified algae in these. And this is the kind of place where whatever you want to try, the fact that it's enclosed keeps us from worrying about impacts on the larger world. Okay. So we're trying to construct, so we're trying to rejuvenate this reef, um, see if we can engineer a resilient reef using this mixing and matching of species and hybridizing corals to resist uh, warming. And then we are going to use the ability to control the reef to adjust the temperature, adjust the pH, maybe adjust some other things, and expose that reef to stresses and see what it looks like for the reef to respond to stresses. And we do this at all scales. Next slide, please. So here's what the ocean looks like, Um, a place to do experiments that we'd be scared to do in nature. Um, Next slide, please. And some of the questions that we have include things like, um, how do reefs respond to changes at all scales? How do corals respond? Um, From the genomic scale to the microbial scale, the individual scale, uh, the community scale, the ecosystem scale, do fish behave differently, um, and does that affect the corals? Uh, Do they give off greenhouse gases in a different way or or metabolize nutrients in different ways? We can measure all of that. How can we construct, how can we engineer a resilient reef that might help communities that are being impacted by the death of reefs around them. Um, So those are the kinds of questions that we're trying to address at the biosphere. I look forward to talking to you more about it. Thanks. Okay, great. So we'll take a little bit of a break, and uh, I have the speakers circulate a little bit. You guys can talk about what you heard, and there's some discussion questions on your tables, and we'll come back together again shortly to have a group discussion. I'm going to try to bring us back together so we can have a group conversation. Well, thank you to our two wonderful speakers. Uh, I, I learned a lot listening to you, and I learned a lot um, listening to you answer questions as you circulated around the room, too. So uh, that's, that's wonderful. Um, I'll moderate this part of the um, discussion, and um, as we'll have a sort of large group discussion. So there's a chance to ask questions of our speakers, but there's also um, a good deal of expertise in the room. So I encourage you to address uh, questions and comments uh, to the whole group as well. Um, I'll be moderating, so I will uh, let you know when you have the floor and when you don't. (coughs) I'm going to pass this cordless mic around. Please use the mic to enable... um, everybody to hear, and also because uh, we are recording this for later podcast. Um, <clears throat> so please let um, me know if you would like to be recognized to speak, even though I don't know anything about the science involved, uh, but I, I do have the microphone. Um, <laughs> um, Likewise, I'll try to give preference um, to people who haven't spoken yet just to to diversify the voices that we hear. So uh, if you've spoken once, I may not get to you again. Um, And I always hope that it'll feel more like a group conversation than just a Q&A, although I know we have some uh, great questions for our our speakers. Um, uh, A couple of quick ground rules. Um, We like to foster open discussion and honest debate, so please be nice to each other or else. And finally, um, we're recording this, so please turn off your phone if your phone rings during this portion of the program. Your embarrassment over that will be preserved on the internet and may very well become part of the geological record of the Anthropocene, so please avoid that fate by turning off your phone. Uh, does anybody have a comment or question or thought to start us off? I, I, I have a, I don't know if it's a thought or a rant. Um, 
But just starting with the premise, our civilization is, say, something in the order of 10,000 years old. Um, if you look at the post-Ice Age warming that we seem to have adapted to and thrived, uh, and in a sense, many of the features that were adaptive for our culture and civilization uh, seem to be carrying the seeds of our current demise. Um, how do you balance the two? How do you stay optimistic? <laughs> the Earth will do fine without us, you know. I mean, the short answer is that I have times of optimism and times of pessimism, right? But uh, if you don't stay optimistic, then you kind of lose the the connection to keep working on it. And I think it's really important that we keep working on it. And every time I start to feel super pessimistic, I start to notice times of hope as well. So the the move away from coal, the expansion of electric vehicles. We're, we're, it's, you know, you can look at it and go, oh, too little, too late. You know, we've already messed up. But, I mean, there's messing up and then there's really messing up, right? So I think that we have the chance to slow this. And if I, if I didn't think that, I think I would, I would really be struggling with it. But I do think we have the chance to slow it down and maybe bring it down. I also take um, consolation, paradoxically, in the fact that uh, we have no clue what's coming around the corner, right, in terms of technology. I mean, who would have thought about the iPhone in 1950, right? We, th- we all thought it was going to be f- you know, flying cars when I was a kid, right? We, we can't predict technological change very well. And so I realize that, mis- you know, like blind... Optimism that technology will fail us is not a great solution, but on the other hand, I do recognize that we don't have a lot of um, uh, predictive capability in this way. That's true. We got the flying car. It, we just can't all go there. <laughs> yeah, and taking the longer view, I, I mean, I agree the Earth's going to be fine, but the question is, is it going to be habitable for us? Like. And I think in studying the long view of human history, it might be uncomfortable for a while, uh, really uncomfortable, particularly considering what we, our standards that we live in. But we're tink- I, 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 I think of, you know, I've worked at the place where the first stone tools have been found 2.6 million years ago. Like, we're tinkerers. We're, you know, and innovative. And so we can't predict what's around the corner. So it's going to be uncomfortable. Many of us might die, but we're all going to die anyway. Um, so... No, I'm serious. No, no, I mean, this is like, <laughs> no, but so this is, if you take the long view of civilization and human evolution, it's rough at some point, and we're actually at an amazingly comfortable space right now, and we can't expect this comfort to last, and we, this is the cost of our comfort, um, so, you know, it could go, it could really tank, like it be, could be the end Permian extinction, which everything died, the earth still rebounded, but, or it could just really stink for a while. Um, so, I don't know. I think the, but I think things are going to change. Right? And so, anyway, I know that's like a 10,000-foot view, but I think that's, <laughs> that's a long view. I wondered if the speakers or anyone else in the room wanted to hazard a guess as to what will follow the Anthropocene, either, you know, what characteristics that age might have. Silicon-based life forms. So I, I follow your optimism-pessimism cycles, but knowing that you, you have studied Stone Age people, it's like you know that the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones, right? And, and I'm not the first person who said that. But and, and the Carbon Age won't end because we run out of oil. If we put all the oil and coal in the atmosphere that we can get, we're, we're, we're basically gone as humans. But I think the optimism I have is that we're starting to pay the costs of adaptation. And as we pay more and more costs of severe storms, of you know, heat waves that, are, that inflict large mortality, I think we have no choice but admit, and we're probably going to be late in the game, but my hope is that the costs of, of adapting and recovering from major climate events will shake us up and move us forward. That's my optimism. Yeah, if carbon is the problem, is there a reliable, unbiased um, evaluation of, uh, you know, what are we doing, uh, where are we putting most carbon? Is it uh, driving diesel trucks, delivering 
goods and services, or is it cutting rainforests? Is there a, a measure of all this? And if we wanted to stop it, where would we start? The quick answer to that question is there is an estimate of it, but off the top of my head, I don't have it. Um, so I can recommend some good sources to you, though, if, uh, afterwards, if you want. There's, uh, um, I mean, the Global Carbon Project tries to break down a lot of that. Uh, some folks at UCS have broken it down by actual company, which companies are responsible. Um, Brenda Eckwartzel, uh, the climate scientist there, gave a talk about that in December that was pretty pretty cool. Um, so there are definitely there is knowledge of that I think though the thing that we that we know for sure is that there isn't a silver bullet right there's a lot of buckshot and so there isn't one thing that stops it it's a lot of things and the idea that we can um, take sort of bites out of this problem in many different ways um, I think has gained a lot of traction and things like um, you know individual actions like like not eating meat, right? That's one thing that's proposed. Uh, but I think the, the bigger bang for the buck comes at the higher levels where we have a... Uh, right now we have an administration that isn't fostering the, the R&D needed to move forward in renewables, and we really need to move forward in renewables, and we need to give them an even playing field or better, maybe accelerate that by putting a cost on carbon so that we can actually you know, make it clear what the cost of the current status quo is, which is high, right? And I think we don't recognize how high that is right now. So if we can put a cost on carbon, we can start to identify where it is cost-effective to start cutting that back. So I really feel like the, the big action has to come at a higher level. I just wonder if either of you would like to comment on the, um, on the idea that some of the communities that are disproportionately bearing the most immediate burden of climate change are not communities that have a great deal of power to make decisions that might shift um, that dynamic. Um, and just your thoughts on how that is shaping the current, uh, our current ability to move forward in a productive manner. Yeah, I think it's a it's a huge challenge, and I actually think that as a society we need to take additional responsibility because if everybody lived like us, then it would really be bad. It would be even. Um, and some of the most vulnerable populations uh, don't have voices on the international scene, or even frankly in our country as well, um, in terms of. So, uh, but this is the problem with people. Like we think about our very immediate sphere. Right? So how can you make this feel immediate? Right? We can talk about all these high f ideas, right? but if people don't feel them, then they won't vote about them, and then we won't actually make change. And so there needs to be sense, you know, when there needs to be some, this very immediate sense that I care about this, and this is the problem when you have billions of people in the world. How do you viscerally care about somebody on that island whose home is underwater? Um, so I, I, it's, it's a huge challenge, but I also think that it's, I mean, there might be social scientists in the room who understand this better, but I think it's, our, it's a challenge of understanding our sense of space and our sense of uh, empathy. Uh, it's, it's really hard. <laughs> um, and so I think that's what we sort of have to overcome. So in some ways, we have to sort of, how does it hit home, right? If you can't, if that population that seems so distant from you, that's so vulnerable from you, doesn't feel like home, then what is going to, what is going to make you do something about it? Um, so maybe we have to wait for these big storms to hit, or maybe we have, you know, so something has to hit home. I, I, frankly, I think for people to then actually do something about it. I, I know that it's not necessarily totally optimistic, but, you know, people aren't really altruistic in many, you know, some people are, but we can't count on everybody being. So I don't know. Maybe that's, so, yeah, I think, we, you know, finding a way for people to really internalize it is going to be. I'm wondering if you meant by carbon tax something that would trickle down to all of us um, because the calculations can be done about the costs of the carbon production. So um, if, if each of us has to pay for that or when we buy uh, something that will end up in landfill that we're also paying for the disposal costs and so on, that might work, although I find that people who have a lot of money don't care. On the other hand, if they pay the tax that might actually, if it goes to the remediation that's required, then that, is that what you're talking about, something like that? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't want to pretend to be an expert on uh, macroeconomic policy. Um, in fact, when my son asked me for help on his econ homework, I'm, I looked at it and I said, this is Chinese to me. Don't ask me. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't understand this. So I want to... Um, but, I, but I feel like what I said was a price on carbon, and if that takes the form of a tax, you know, it, one way or another, we pay it, right? I do agree that it has to come back to supporting the goal of that cost, which is advancing the, the goal of renewable energy and moving ex extensively to renewables. It also has to be non-regressive, right? It has to make sure that people who are struggling financially aren't paying it, you know, at the same rate that people who can afford to pay it and don't care about it are paying. So I feel like... Well, I mean, with a base income, right? I mean, the way the income tax system works, it's like progressive, right? So you pay less if you make more as a rate and more when you make more as a rate. So something like that. Don't get me started on income taxes. It's the wrong time of year for that. But, <laughs> but I, I, I mean, you know, and I'm not a tax expert. What I, but what, I, what I'm saying is that there's a cost to every bit of carbon that we burn that is not currently being taken account of. And whether that's the pollution and the climate change or other things, right, that, um, that go with it, we need to start taking account of that because the atmosphere can no longer be our giant landfill that doesn't charge an entry fee, Right. We have to do something about dumping, seeing this as a pollutant and charging accordingly. Yeah, you know, our table, I was going to comment on the justice thing because we talked about that at our table. And, but just going to this tax thing, first and, for, and, go, and emphasizing what was already said, I mean, the big thing is fossil fuel burning. That is by far the most... Um, destructive in terms of climate change and the impacts climate change is bringing, which we really haven't seen anything yet. Um, it's only going to get a lot worse. Um, the tax issue, one of the things that just to think about is that um, right now we pay taxes, this time of year is a good time to think about that, that are, we're paying to provide revenue for the government. So the idea of carbon taxes, you're, you would still, they would substitute for the revenue that we're paying to the government to run the government, but you'd get the added bonuses that they would do something else in addition. Incentivize lower carbon use. And that's, you know, so that's like carbon tax and fee and dividend and all these ideas that are out there. They're all aimed at that. Getting two things for every dollar we pay taxes in rather than one thing. On the justice thing, we were just talking about how um, what's going What happened in Michigan? You know, you drive outside of Ann Arbor and we see in rural Michigan a lot of Trump signs, and that's all over the, the country. And well, the point, I think, is that if we don't find solutions for adaptation or reducing greenhouse gas emissions that are good for all Americans, we continue to increase this divide we're seeing in society. There'll be the haves and the haves-nots. We'll just get bigger. The divide will get bigger. So that's, I think, the key thing with justice is how can we make the world more sustainable but also just, more, more equality of opportunity? I think we're all preaching to the choir here. I would like to refocus back on the, the coral reefs. And uh, has inventories been done of the different species in the environment and the various things? Are there... Is there an active uh, effort to try to maybe relocate them? I'm thinking that maybe things are changing so fast that they can't grow fast enough to, for the, 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 the uh, elevation change in the ocean even. You know, are, are, is someone working on this problem? Yeah, thanks. There, there are people working all over the world on this problem. There's an effort worldwide to mobilize uh, local people who, who manage or fish on or run tourism operations on local reefs all around the world to do censuses and to identify when bleaching is happening. So there's a lot of use of the new tools of connectedness that we have to document where coral bleaching is happening and um, what species are getting hit hardest and that kind of thing. So there's a huge 
effort in that area. And it's not a top-down effort. It's really grassroots, I would say, because people are recognizing the value of these reefs to their local communities. You may, um, if you think about where coral reefs are located, right, mostly in the tropics, um, there are most of the reefs in the world are in cash-poor economies, right? Uh, Australia being probably the exception to that. You know, we don't have major reefs in this country, and most of the reefs, the, the most abundant reefs are in places like Indonesia and the Philippines and, and across the East African um, coast and uh, throughout the Caribbean. So these are places that really value their reefs and are starting to take notice. In terms of the threats, the threats are also very localized. So you might have in one place a situation where development is threatening a reef with sedimentation being, you know, from construction or, or um, uh, causeway construction or that kind of thing, dumping sediment on a reef. In another place, it might be fishing. Dynamite fishing is a real issue. So there's threats that are localized that can be easily managed, and people are starting to pay attention to those, although... Um, not always successfully. I mean, uh, Australia is known for having this this kind of, uh, what's the word? Uh, they do a 180 on, on their commitment to the environment in some ways because the, the Great Barrier Reef is their iconic environmental treasure, and yet they also mine coal like crazy, and they want to put coal transfer stations on the coastline where, peop- where freighters would have to actually come through the reef and dock to do that and then go back out. So they're talking about dredging like crazy there. So it, it's a real... Mix, you know, even in places that that really value the reefs and have a lot of resources to put behind them. Um, but money talks. <laughs> uh, sorry to be jumping around. I want to go back to the two previous speakers' uh, uh, comments. Uh, I recently learned about and have since joined a group called the Citizens Climate Lobby, which has, to me, a very good plan for not taxing carbon emissions but uh, putting a fee on them. The money uh, uh, derived from that fee would not go to the government to spend, but would rather be rebated to each individual citizen on a per capita basis. So it has the social justice aspect that people who do not earn much money uh, and presumably uh, emit less carbon actually will benefit under the plan, and those who spend a lot of money and, and emit a lot of carbon will be the ones who, who pay for that. So if you haven't heard of the Citizens Climate Lobby, I urge you to go check it out and see if you would agree with that, uh, their philosophy. Uh, just a question. If we were able to get all our heat deeds from the sun and not use carbon, would the earth still heat up? Yes. <laughs> so the, well, no, there would still, well, there would still be some heating. If we stopped all emissions right now, we would still see some residual heating. So we would still see – so basically we're still going to be responding to our – the. so the earth is taking a long time to actually respond. So if we stop now, there's so there's different projections for climate models. And the one scenario is we stop. We figure – we get our act together and we figure it out or, like, a lot of us die, right? That would do it too. But, like, we basically figure it out and we stop. Let's say we go to total solar. We're still going to, I think, maybe over the next 50 years, maybe see, like, one degree of warming. I, I don't know what – there's still some – minimum projections, right? And then there's the horrible scenarios where we just keep scaling up. So we're still, so this is the, if, even if we get our act together and we stop, we're still going to see some sort of rebound, right? Because we actually haven't, we haven't experienced all the carbon we put into the atmosphere yet. Um, but it will level off and it will slow down. The question that I have that we haven't run this experiment yet is that and I was telling one table, we've been going between a glacial interglacial, glacial interglacial for the past probably two and a half million years at a very distinct carbon barrier, 180 ppm, 280 ppm, 180 ppm, 280 ppm. 180. We're now at 410. So we're beyond, we're basically before we became, it's basically the origin of our genus, Homo, is basically we're at that, that, those levels of CO2. So we're sort of, I don't know how long it's going to take us to sort of get back. Um, so, but we would, the earth would probably start to normalize in some way, but we're running an experiment we've never run before. And even if we have it all figured out right now, we're still going to, it's still weird, right? <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, right? But it's in terms of a, a p- person who studies paleoclimate, we're doing something very weird right now. And the earth has, hasn't seen anything like it. So we don't know what really, frankly, is going <laughs> to happen, but it would control it. Yeah, it would level off. 
Just one comment on that. The, the sea level rise is an issue that would continue to go up for many decades, if not centuries as well, because as we're warming the atmosphere, the ice takes a long time to come into balance with that temperature. And so it's only now kind of starting to respond in ways that we can see clearly are accelerating. And if we were to stop emitting carbon right now, the ice still hasn't come into balance with the, the current temperature, I would say. So, so it'll take some time for that. Do you really... the it's going to be exponentially better, or ex- whichever way you put it, but we'll put it the positive way. If we can control things now, things will be exponentially better if we can't control, th- you know. And we'll have more time to respond. This is the scary thing, that if we keep things at the rate that we're thinking, we, we're also we're not going to have time to study it and to be able to respond quickly enough, right? So everything's in our... F- the, more, the more that we can do to keep things down, the better we'll be. I don't know. So it's, it should be seen as a sliding scale, too. Sounds like there's a delay on the reaction of the climate to the the carbon that we put in. So I thought I heard you say that the best way of approaching this is to actually take multiple small bites out of it rather than actually trying to get people to stop using fossil fuels, which we probably will reluctantly agree is a bit of a dead loss then we actually need to find out a way of actually mitigating as much of it as possible whilst trying to encourage people to, to uh, stop using or lower their dependence upon fossil fuels. Hopefully that will actually happen when any stuff starts to run out. But we need to, we're talking about trying to find a way of uh, building a more resilient reef. You're talking about uh, the corals being bleached. Can we genetically engineer the algae to live in different um, uh, temperature ocean? Can we actually crack the photosynthesis problem where we could actually use um, artificial photosynthesis to A, reduce the um, carbon dioxide and create things with it? I mean, there are a whole host of sort of technologically um, um, sort of pie-in-the-sky things that we should be thinking about to actually to try and actually help this rather than just having the knee-jerk reaction of saying, okay, let's tax the crap out of carbon, okay, when we know that the uh, people won't, won't do that. A lo- lot of people think it's a great idea, but a lot of folks don't. Yeah, I agree. The, the tax word is a tough one, um, no matter where you are. I feel like... Um, Maybe I need to clarify one thing that I said, which is, you know, we have to take small bites. The, the big problem is carbon. The problem is there's not just a, a switch that we can flip. So that's what I was trying to say, is that in order to bring the carbon levels down in the atmosphere, that problem has to be attacked on many fronts. It's, uh, you know, it's burning coal or, or even natural gas for electricity. It's what we put in our cars. Um, but it's also how we manage land uh, and what we do agriculturally. And so there's a lot of things that need to, to go into that. It's, it's can we store it? Can we pull it out of the atmosphere? The most optimistic projections of future climate change require that we figure out a way to do that. Right. So how do we do that? So that's what I meant when I said that there's not one solution because what we actually do is lots of little things. But carbon is the problem. Don't get me wrong. That that is the issue. Um, uh, your second question. Sorry, it was about corals, but yeah, there's a paper that just came out about this actually, and so that was that caught my attention as a. Um, Something that that people are considering. I mean, I realize full on that anything we do in the lab or even in the the biosphere um, to to strengthen individual corals and breed better corals, tougher corals to make a tougher reef, transferring that to the actual ocean is a challenge. It's, I mean, it's a social challenge, but I think. The bigger issue is it's a scaling challenge, right? It's, it's so big. The, reefs, the, the Great Barrier Reef is 2,000 kilometers long, right? You're not going to plant it with little corals. Um, so so it's, it's difficult. Um, and, and in order to solve the reef problem, we have to be solving the climate problem at the same time because there's no way to solve the coral problem if the temperature and the CO2 levels keep going up and up and up. And I didn't even mention ocean acidification, but as you add CO2 to the atmosphere, of course, you add it to the ocean because it exchanges, and that's also bad for corals. So at some point, that becomes a real issue as well as the temperature. So uh, it all hinges really on getting carbon out of the atmosphere.
um, whether it's by stopping it at the source or extracting it somehow. I'm going to pause briefly and um, say a couple things. One is that there's these little um, evaluations on your tables, and if you can start to fill those out, it will help us, uh, especially if you have a suggestion for a topic that you'd like to see treated in a science cafe. We really, really appreciate that. And then if you think we've done a really bad job tonight, please tell us that too, uh, because that way we can do better next time. Um, that said, I promised I would try hard to diversify the voices. Is there anybody who hasn't spoken yet who has a question? Okay. Does the amount of plastic in the ocean have any, any effect on the coral reefs? And is there any way to get it out of there? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> there was a, a paper that quantified that just a couple of months ago where the, the amount of plastic on reefs and the percentage of reefs that have plastic on them was documented. And the big issue seems to be that plastic is a substrate for bacteria and disease-causing organisms that carries that to corals and then snags on corals and keeps those microbes next to the corals and causes an increased incidence of disease. So that's what we're seeing in terms of plastic-coral interactions directly. Um, you probably know that, that plastic pollution in the ocean is one of the big pollution issues that we have right now, but, but the interaction of that with coral seems to be in the area of disease right now. Can we get it all out? Uh, probably not all of it. <laughs> but, I mean, I will say there are people out there who are trying to figure out large-scale solutions to that problem. And, and so if we want to pin our hopes on a future solution that we can't predict, there are people working on this. <laughs> I think that the key here, though, is, again, let's stop using single-serving, single-use plastics, right? I mean, we all got a, a drink tonight, right? And what's in our drink? A straw. We all got a straw. And what's going to happen to the straw? Are they going to wash it and reuse it? No. So a really good idea is when you order something, you know, it's a, yeah, say no straw. Right? and encourage restaurants to go no straw. Right, So there's a lot of single-use plastics around that we can avoid using if we try. Sorry for speaking twice, but there's been some really cool things spoke. And my friend in the corner who mentioned the citizens' climate lobby, I just want to say a carbon fee doesn't have to be a tax. And, um, and the citizens' climate lobby has that model. And I just want to inject a note of optimism because, as, as I've said, the, if a fee on carbon at the wellhead or at the coal mine that is refunded to people fits a social justice model, but it's also politically palatable. There's a bipartisan solu climate solutions caucus in the House of Representatives in the U.S. Congress which, which requires equal membership of Republicans and Democrats. And thus far, there are 60 Three of our Republican congress congressmen, and they are three men at this time, are members. None of our Democratic congressional representatives are. I, I would like to follow up on your comment and really you know, have people look into the Citizens Climate Lobby. It is a viable solution. It's not a tax. It's a redistribution of fees that are extracted to people who are at risk and all people, but you could imagine a, a progressive uh, refund, which, which refunded poorer people more as well. So just thanks for bringing that up. That was going to be my comment, and, and, and you did a much better job, but it's politically realistic. We can pressure our representatives to, to do this non-tax fee and dividend. So. I, I have a couple more questions or comments, and I'm just going to let people go, go at it and ask the questions, and we'll come back. I'm sort of hesitant to bring this up, but all this, you know, carbon and plastics and all this, I, your chart goes way back before fossil fuels, blah, 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 agriculture, deforestation. What about human population? I mean, it <laughs> seems like even if you fix all these, you know, what we're using for fuel and all that, if population keeps going, we're still going to run into an issue at some point, maybe just a lot further down the road. I gave these out um, last time. They're the designs that the um, Center for Biological Diversity does for the condoms that they pass out. So they're endangered species condoms. You can pick up a flyer. I don't have any condoms. You'll have to write to the center. No, I think that's a... So 
the more people we have, the more craftier we have to be, right? You know, and so this is the issue. So there's, yeah, I mean, I think po- if you look at popula- it's population rates and population growth is scary when you look at it. Um, and so, but this is, yeah. So I don't know what the, what is the carrying capacity of the earth for humans? That's a good, that's a question, right? And what's the optimal size of human, you know, but. So. Um, if I could follow up on that, I think uh, one of the things to remember about population is that it's not so much how many people, but how much they're using. And so, you know, one American uses, God, I wanted to look this up before tonight and I forgot, but like 25 times as much in that order of magnitude, resources as someone born in a country that's that's not yet industrialized, and so it, it's it's easy to scapegoat numbers, but it's important to look at consumption patterns. Okay, so um, can I just get a big round of appreciative applause for our speakers? Thank you so much. You spoke so knowledgeably about your science and you were not shy about addressing the the social and policy issues so thank you very much, I really appreciate it Um, and thank you guys you guys make Science Cafe what it is Um, please keep coming back